Hello and welcome to the next edition of The Shindig, a podcast about archaeology brought to you by the Red River Archaeology Group. Um, today we've got a returnee. Um, Luke will be very cheered because it was uh, Ryan McNutt, Dr. Ryan McNutt of Georgia Southern University. Um, and we had a great time recording with him last time. It was one of the earliest ones we, we did as a, a, as a pair um, in season two. And that was a fantastic one because Ryan is an expert in uh, the U.S. Civil War and he has an amazing uh, Confederate built, well, slave built prisoner of war camp for Union prisoners. And that's his archaeological project. But he's also been doing some incredible research in blockade runners. Now, uh, ask me what blockade runners are, Luke. What are blockade runners, Tom? That's a good question, Luke. Um, blockade <laughs> runners were essentially when the Civil War starts in the U.S., uh, the North blockade the South. They blockade their, their ports and their river systems. And because of the way that the U.S. was set up, obviously all the slavery, cotton plantations and everything was in the South. So the North thought, well, if we cut them off, they're not going to have access to manufactured goods. They're not going to be able to sell the cotton, which brings in their hard currency. And the war, as everyone would think, would be over by Christmas or, or there thereabouts. But what the Confederacy did was essentially find ways around it, a bit like with the embargoes today against uh, Russian hydrocarbons. There are always ways that you can get a third party involved. And that's essentially what the Confederacy did. They got a third party, I, you know, shipbuilders in Glasgow, to build these super fast, low draft ships. So very, very shallow, very, very fast paddle steamers that have sort of been developed in the Western Isles of Scotland and the Irish Sea region. And then were noted for being super fast. So they're forgetting the mail out to the, to the islands and across the Irish Sea. Um, and the Confederacy and their agents saw really uh, an opportunity to get these super fast ships and use them. And what they would do is they would use them between the Caribbean and the southern ports because they could sneak in past the Union ships that were standing guard. And what Ryan has been doing is research into who is paying for these ships that you know the these confederate agents are setting up companies and paying for these ships because they're costing millions of pounds a go and yeah the basically then what is happening with the development of these ships on the Clyde and you know the, the fact is that even you know all across Europe you know Scotland Ireland uh, the, the rest of the uh, uh, the European continent everybody's kind of getting involved because there's so much money all this cotton is what they need the 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 the, the British empire's kind of is driven on this cotton that they manufacture into into clothing and they'll send to uh to uh as it was british india so there was a real problem and that's what the confederacy actually thought they thought that initially um the lack of cotton might force britain to 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 join the side of the confederacy but they didn't so they had to get around it and they they developed a system of blockade runners so the the the, the goods would get carried uh, across the Atlantic and what you would do is when you got the goods so if you bring them from Europe it could be manufactured good luxury goods um, but rifles for for the Confederacy Army and then they would get um, transshipped in the, the Caribbean Barbados and places like that and then they would zoom in and out of the southern ports and when they were in southern ports they'd get the cotton and the, that cotton was used to pay for the goods that are being brought in and Ryan has been doing some incredible research on this so he's been looking at the original correspondence in these uh, Clydeside shipbuilders and um, he's been looking obviously at the effect of that in sites like his in Camp Lawton that he discusses in his previous podcast and just also the fact you know what we were asking questions about you know is it actually what, what's happening in the Clyde in Glasgow what's happening in Cork what's happening in Liverpool and mm -hmm. Bristol and London is that prolonging the war causing tens of thousands more people to die to you know cause slavery to last for longer so we're just looking at how complicit um you know the, the rest of the world is when there's lots of money to be made and there are embargoes going on yeah, Ryan is somebody I was very eager to get back on. He's a great speaker. He speaks very passionately. He knows what he's talking about. And I'm sure our listeners and our viewers are going to love this interview with Dr. Ryan McNutt. So, Ryan, we've got you back again. Um, it's about the American Civil War again, but it's about something that I know you're really interested in, the sort of international elements to it, the sort of global trade, the, the money that's moving around. You know, we're no stranger to this in the modern world, you know, people with trade embargoes and getting around that. And this is obviously something that's facing the Confederacy from, from day one. Um, 
But so we're going to be sort of focusing on the blockade runners, which are I'll get you to explain what they are. But so basically, very fast shallow draft ships that are are good for breaking breaking a blockade into the the shallow sort of southern river river ports. Um, but we're talking about ships, but isn't this is really a story about money and slavery and and cotton and the arms trade, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, supply, money. Um, and how you meet that supply. Um, it is, it's almost impossible to overstate how poor the Confederacy was in terms of any kind of manufacturing capability. I mean, arms and armaments and all the kind of stuff for war, but even butter. Um, you could not buy pre-war confederate made or southern made butter in a store it was all imported from the north now obviously the kind of uh middle class and and lower class whites um other people would make their own butter um on site but for the kind of upper class and middle to upper class they bought their butter because it tasted better and that was made in the north and imported to stores in the south um you couldn't almost anything that you could buy was imported from the north. Um, even salt, to a large extent, the Confederacy only had two uh, access to two sources of salt, which is pretty essential for any kind of food preservation or just making food palatable. And when the war started, with the imme- almost immediate block of any imports from the north, very quickly uh, shortages started to show up. Um, everywhere. And that's really what the kind of blockade runners were in response to. Some of it was, of course, uh, the kind of standard business of arms and armament um, and bringing in some military supplies. But most of blockade running was private industry. And the slightly ironic aspect of it is the very nature of the Confederacy as a a states' rights-focused governmental entity was that there was almost no centralized government control over blockade running. It was all very, I mean, that that's what, from reading what, what you, you very kindly sent me, it's, 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 it's almost like a early modern at, at best situation in the South. There, there really aren't factories. There really isn't an industrial base. Oh, yeah. um, it's all set up for the huge profits that they're making from uh, some cotton uh, and, and tobacco through slave run plantations isn't it so you really got to get that idea that as soon as you put that blockade in i'll ask you next about what the blockade was and the the plan from from the union behind that but you you, this is it kind of wasn't very well thought through so they really had to win the war you know in the first couple of battles didn't they otherwise it was a bit like maybe like the germans in the first world war if you didn't win it in that first year you were never going to win it. Is is that really what what we're talking about? And and then you go into you know what, what the blockade plan was in Lincoln and yeah. and um, Winfield Scott. Yeah, um, it was very much this idea that you know the prevailing idea was that it was only going to last a few months. That it'd probably be over by Christmas. And if oh, we've heard that before, that, haven't we? Yeah, oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So if the Confederacy could win uh, a couple of key battles right off the start, then all this stuff wouldn't necessarily matter. And they were thoroughly unprepared for any kind of long-term uh, military engagement. Uh, it was just like, as you're saying, it's almost like it was like a really sort of bad negotiating tactic. It was like, okay, we'll, we'll sort of win the PR war by Christmas and then they'll give us, they'll allow us to do what we were doing before the war with, with slavery. Is, is that maybe the way to look oh, at yeah. it? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, bring them back to the negotiating table. Um, um, acknowledge the you know the independence of the Confederacy as a separate nation, and they'll just go both go their separate ways, and the Confederacy will keep slavery. Um, and yeah, things will just go on as they were before, with the Confederacy representing the true uh, vision of the founders of states' rights and sovereignty as they saw it. And. So the 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 did the union then basically say, oh, hang on. I mean, they were a bit shocked. The battle of uh, the the first battle was it Bull Run? There's two names for it, isn't there? Because they're both yeah. there's the naming convention. What's the the there was the Confederate name and there was a union name for the first battle. Uh, Bull Run is a union name. Uh, first Manassas battle. Of first Manassas, Manassas. Is and that that's kind of disaster for union, isn't it? They they're kind of oh, like yeah. oh, the the Confederacy might be able to march on sort of Washington, and it might be over. 
very very soon but it it doesn't it doesn't transpire for for that to happen so basically after that happens and they get over the union get over the initial shock do they is there a sort of conscious thing the first thing they do with lincoln and we'll talk about general winfield scott and his anaconda plan do they think oh hang on if we we kind of just need to not lose this in the first six months and we can sort of strangle their supply because we know they don't have factories we know they don't have that industrial base oh yeah absolutely and that's the whole plan and it's this kind of it's a it's an interesting exercise in um, kind of a political approach because you you're kind of caught between two one desirable outcome, but there's also a downside to it, which is that you can blockade the Confederacy, but technically blockades are only legal if it's a foreign nation. And blockading it to a certain extent gives the Confederacy some legitimacy as an actual foreign, uh, you know, a real political entity, as opposed to just a rebellion against the U.S. So that was part of a lot of discussion running up to the blockade. But, yeah, eventually Lincoln and Scott essentially went that, well, this is the only way to stop it is to stop any kind of imports from coming in. Um, and that's where the blockade running really starts, because under um, maritime law, um, just I'm not going to go into detail about it because I don't have the focus for it. But essentially, a blockade is only legal if it can be broken. So if you can get into the ports, then the blockade isn't legal and nobody's breaking the law. And that's making people, my head hurt, but yeah, go yeah, on. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a weird, it's a weird catch 22 where it's like a blockade is only legal if it works. And that's why the British were fine with running through it, because if it's not working and you can get through it, then it's not a legal blockade necessarily. We're, we're officially taking your word for it, Ryan. Yeah. <laughs> you should talk to somebody, somebody in the Admiralty. Uh, there's been books and books written about the legal aspects of it. Um, but that's basically what kicks it off. And to be fair, for the first several years of the blockade, it is pathetically ineffective. Um, there are hundreds of tons of armaments, uh, ships coming through, um, just full of weapons uh, because the Union uh, fleet is pretty paltry. Um, a lot of his civilian ships pressed in to use his gunboats, and there's just not enough of them to patrol all the tiny little inlets and rivers um, and entryways into Confederate ports that you get all along the southeast coast, pretty much from Georgia, uh, really all the way up to North Carolina and even Virginia to a certain extent. All right. Okay, we'll just, okay, I'll just ask the next question now. Um, We'll just edit this. Um, So, but, you know, you say it's it's basically it's the legalities is something that we we, we don't need to go into in, in, on on the blockade. But I suppose we're looking at you know the ways that the South are immediately trying to counteract it. Um, and and you know to go back on that first is how important were their main exports? Which really it's cotton by far, isn't it? it? There's some tobacco, but it's it's mainly cotton, and it's called king cotton at yeah. that time. Just to give us an idea of scale. How important to the pre-war United States and and then you know by several factors to the Confederacy was the the the, the export of of this cotton to to bring in the hard currency and to bring in uh, the the goods that they needed the munitions to to carry on the war for example. Oh, I mean, in in capital, I mean, the Confederacy had no real source of reserves. Um, cotton was pretty much the only kind of crop that they really had. Um, they were. Yeah, other stuff, um, supplies of pitch, um, which the Royal Navy was obviously quite interested in, um, tar, things of that nature, um, rice, uh, but predominantly it was all cotton. And those are almost exclusively the exports that the blockade runners were doing. And funnily enough, in another example of the Confederacy's um, unwise um, economic decisions, um, they pretty much opened the door to um, rebellion and military action and then immediately tripped right over the step by completely embargoing cotton exports in 61. Because their idea was that if we don't export any cotton at all, 
it's going to force Britain to then recognize us as an independent sovereign nation because they're going to need cotton so badly. And this is what causes things like uh, the cotton famine in Britain, um, factories shutting down in places like Liverpool, um, you know, in Manchester, and that and that that's the thing yeah. because I think we should we should say that one of the main economic drivers of the, the Victorian sort of industrial sort of miracle and, and 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 wealth creation is taking in this cotton from the south, manufacturing it into clothing, and then selling it to literally a sort of captive market in uh, in the sort of Indian subcontinent. Is that is that correct? Um. um. Indian subcontinent, um, as well as selling, yeah, finished clothing back to the South because they had, again, incredibly few factories. Um, there's maybe one or two clothing uh, cloth, cloth factories per state at the outbreak of war, if that. Right. So, that, I mean, this is this is the picture we're building up then that cotton is, is central. The first steps that the, the, the Confederacy take her to sort of say, well, we're going to deny it. And then, you know, you know, Britain will suddenly support us, you know, uh, uh, you know, legally, and they, they will come in maybe as even as an ally, or they'll, they'll, they'll force the, 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 the North to, to, to recognize us in some case, but that, that doesn't happen, does it? No, no, no. I mean, basically, because you guys immediately went, oh, well, okay, we'll just start importing it from East India and Egypt. And it took a while um, to to offset um, that kind of lack of trade. But I think um, before the war, um, import of East Indian cotton was something like uh, um, 700-something thousand bales, something like that. Um, Then it increased to something close to several million bales after um, the Confederacy declared and the war started. So there's a drastic increase in imports. And then the Confederacy realizes that, oh, well, cotton embargoes aren't going to start to work. Um, but it's funnily enough, not necessarily the Confederacy. It's almost immediately the planters who are hurting for money who then start exporting their cotton through these uh, blockade runners. And you get all kind of private schemes set up to take care of it. Um, again, not run by the Confederacy, run by private enterprise and agency. So then maybe then it's almost like what's happening now is, I mean, maybe now with, with, with Russian uh, hydrocarbons, it, it's, it's, it's now going to India and being refined and then sold, you know, it's being sort of washed in that, in that, in, in, in that sense. So this is maybe for, for listeners now, this is, you know, this, you know, what was happening in the civil war is still happening today. There are still people trying mm-hmm. to get around, uh, embargoes and the 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 money and the goods are being sort of washed through several so people go what well, this is this is this is fine this is this isn't dirty cotton or dirty dirty hydrocarbons I suppose the yeah. hydrocarbons are but you 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 take take my point so right so could you maybe then give us an, an example we'll start to lead more into the specifics now um I, I think starting with what you've been alluding to there the sort of the states, the individual states, and then companies and uh, entrepreneurs, for want of a better word, within these states, start to set up companies so they can begin to export cotton and, and, and break through the, the blockade. And then, So maybe talk about it starting from the southern side of things and then talk about the sort of parallel developments that are happening in, in sort of Britain and Ireland in the sense of you know, how people are adapting to this new reality of, of the, sort of the blockade breaking. Yeah. Yeah, um, there's a couple of firms that um, get set up in the states. Um, One of the biggest ones is the South Carolina Trading Company, um, which is run uh, by Frazier and Trenholm. Um, And these were guys that um, had already been in business, in the important exporting business into Britain. Uh, So they had established um, offices. Um, they had, um, offices in Liverpool. Um, so this is an existing thing. Um, and essentially they just kind of shifted, um, to this new quasi legal approach to, um, importing and exporting cotton. Um, along with them were also specifically in the state of Georgia, um, the importing and exporting company of Georgia, as it was known. Which was established fairly late um, ish, uh, spring 1863. Um, and they were deliberately set up um, by a 
an individual named Gazaway Bug Lamar. Um, he was a cotton merchant banker. Um, he'd been an advisor to the Confederate officials, um, including the Confederate Secretary of the Treasury. And he was one of the people who was arguing against the cotton embargo from the start. Um, he was joined by his son, uh, Charles Augustus Lafayette Lamar. Um, and that name might be familiar to some of your listeners. And if it is, it's because in 1857, he led the financing of the Wanderer, which was a schooner that was built to try to restart the Atlantic slave trade, which had been illegal since 1808. And she sailed to the Congo in 1858 and came back with 409 enslaved Africans. And they offloaded them to... Um, at Jekyll Island, um, they smuggled into slave markets in South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. And Lamar, uh, of course, um, escaped any punishment whatsoever for his actions. Um, and I'm mentioning this because profits from that also almost certainly went into providing the capital to establish the company in spring of 63. Um, Gazaway Lamar was the president and major shareholder, and supposedly shares were sold in public at something like $1,000 a share. There were only 10 people, including the two Lamars, who were listed as shareholders. And somehow, those 10 people between May and mid-June of about 63 raised a million dollars. In, so, in, in 1860s money? 1860s money. Right, okay. Yeah. So they're almost certainly pulling from that existing capital that they had. Um, and yeah, they're one of these uh, great examples is they, they're established, uh, they get set up um, by fall of 63. Uh, Charles Augustus Lamar um, is in Britain and he's going there to look at ships in Clydebank shipyards. Um, specifically, he ends up at um, J&G Thompson shipyard in Govan. And he buys the, our orders, uh, the building of the Little Hattie, the Lillian, and Emma Henry. Um, he also pops over to Renfrew to William Simons and Co. and orders the Mary Bowers and the Little Ada. And then he's also ordering from Atkin and Mansell in Glasgow, uh, the Flory. So. All right. So it, the, the way to look at it is. Uh, you know, sort of fairly horrible people like that, um, but who are very business savvy, they hop on over the Atlantic and they say, okay, we need as many ships as you can make. And the clay ship will say this costs a lot of money and say, well, we have a lot of money. Uh, we won't tell you where we got it. Um, but you don't need to worry about that. We just need some very fast ships. And very fast ships have been developed because you get all the sort of the, the islands, people who don't know, there's, you know, you know the, the Hebrides of Scotland, there's lots of islands that need uh, mail ships and they need supplies brought in regularly. So, and they were kind of very sort of rocky sort of shorelines. So you need to have very sort of fast, sort of shallow draft ships. So basically Glasgow kind of has, has a sort of uh, the skill and the experience in building these ships for originally good aims, but the Confederacy say, oh, this is precisely what we want. So we can just basically get them off plan and we can go to the Clyde in, in Glasgow and Clyde Bank and Renfrew and and and, and just put it put in the order. So once that money starts flowing in, is this when there are agents that are in Glasgow or stay in Glasgow and Liverpool and Bristol and, 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 and London and they start to sort of set up the sort of the sort of side companies that, that will manage this from the from the, the, the sort of British side of things. Oh yeah. Yeah, this is where you start to get um, these kind of uh, consortiums of firms um, like, um, well, the Albion uh, Shipping Company. Um, it's run by two Scots. Um, and this is where you also get this kind of quasi-gray um, establishment because Albion Shipping Co. Was, company was supposed to have been established for trade with Burma. And it is a consortium of shipbuilders, owners, uh, and merchants. Um, and they are specifically saying that they need ships that are shallow drafted with power to fight tidal rivers and to carry heavy cargoes across the Indian Ocean around South Africa and the Atlantic Ocean, which, yeah, 
But funnily enough, that same description also fits the ports of Charleston, South Carolina, Wilmington, North Carolina, and Mobile. Um, and one of the individuals involved with this um, is uh, Thomas uh, Begby, um, who's a native-born Scot, but he's working out of London and traveling back and forth between London and Glasgow. Um, and his dear friend um, that he repeatedly refers to in his letters as my dear Scott, um, head of the shipbuilding firm Scott and Company. And Scott was one of the partners in the Albion Shipping Co. Um, he's building ships for them, uh, the Marmion, the Talisman, and the Red Gauntlet, who are all blockade runners. Um, and yeah, it's, and f again, funnily enough, this is not arms and ammunition. That's a tiny percentage of most of the cargo. <clears throat> um, because cannon and gunpowder takes a heavy tonnage. Um, but it's stuff like plates, brandy, pork, um, uh, pipes, decanters, um, Brandy, liquor, wine, corsets, broadcloth, dreadcloth, uh, dress cloths, rather. Um, it's basically, this is luxury market stuff. This is stuff that planters want that's coming in. Um, stuff that the Confederacy needed made up a portion of the cargo, um, but often the Confederacy was paying a premium fee for the items themselves and for that cargo space. It's basically being rented out to them, where it's like, X amount of money gets you X amount of tonnage on this ship. And and just talking about it, because I think, correct me if I'm wrong, and probably am, that initially people were trying to do this at straight shot across the Atlantic with, with these ships, which they're probably not best suited for. But yeah. it's what happens then that the, 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 the development is, because this is a system that becomes very sophisticated very quickly. As I understand it, then sort of slower ships would take this cargo, uh, um, whether from the, the exports from, 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 from Britain across, and then they would go to the sort of Caribbean ports. And it was only at that stage that the, the, the clay built, you know, uh, uh, steamers, they're paddle steamers with these blockade runners. Um, they're just running from, you know, like an Nassau to, to a Southern port. Is that, that's the way we kind of think of it. And then oh, yeah. obviously the, the reverse is true when the cotton is coming out. It just actually goes to the Caribbean. Then it gets transported and it gets cleaned again, this sort of laundering and then it gets taken yeah. slowly across the, the Atlantic. Is, is that right? Yeah. And it's basically this staging thing. Um, it's essentially the fact that it's, it's a bit riskier um, for blockade runners to cross the Atlantic. I mean, they can't do it, um, but it's far more cost effective to have um, far bigger ships carrying far more tonnage that are offloading these materials. Um, they're, they're, yeah, these are the ones that are bringing up across um, armaments, the luxury goods, the heavy stuff. They're offloading it in um, Nassau, uh, Bermuda, um, Halifax. Um, all of these kind of southern ports are Caribbean uh, ports. And then, yeah, the blockade runners are picking it up and they're running it into the ports and then they're bringing out the cotton. The cotton gets back loaded up onto these ships and it's sent across the Atlantic. Um, and the cargo manifests are always um, fairly vague. Um, there are U.S. agents in all of these ports and they're watching it happen. They're watching stuff leave Havana. They're watching stuff leave Nassau and St. George. But technically, they're British flag vessels, so they are basically the blockading fleets are simply just having to kind of perch in U.S. waters outside these ports and trying to catch um, these blockade runners. And this is where it gets even more interesting because the runners started out um, just being kind of these off uh, spec ships uh, that are made for, you know, the uh, mail runs, passenger trade across to Ireland to the Hebrides, like you said. But they very quickly start with Scottish ingenuity really working on making these blockade runners faster, shallower, able to carry more cargo, um, silent, um, doing developing engines that can burn um, clean coal, smokeless coal. This is anthracite. Yeah, I was reading in your notes yeah. about that, that essentially kind of smoke that's and, and and also was it I was reading in this the, the notes in general reading I was doing, I think the American Battlefield Trust had a, a good a good uh, piece on it that they, they had funnels that you could you could like telescope it, you could retract them down and some of them had ones that you could then put into the water so that the smoke went through the water and further 
dissipated yeah. and things like that. It's, I mean, oh, yeah. and they're painted sort of grey and they were very shallow. I mean, that was the thing. One of the notes and one of the things you sent me was that you're talking about some of them have like seven feet of of draft, which you said you know you could basically run them through your, the, the 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 deep end of your your local swimming pool. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they are incredibly shallow drafted, um, even heavily loaded. Um, and there is there's notes in the correspondence of all of that. Um, a lot of it between Bigby and Scott, where he's pressing for, you know, I need this is the draft that I want when she is fully loaded late. And that is yeah, seven feet of draft is when she is completely full of cargo. Um, yeah, so you get yeah. So they're they're becoming there. There's and and this is this is probably moving on to the next, the next point. It's it's because they're coming so specialized that no one can be pretending now that they're not very specifically for this blockade uh, running market. Do, I mean, you 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 did some great research at the University of Glasgow Archives, which is a, a fantastic yeah. resource. Um, could you tell us a little bit about maybe you know what they're talking about in their letters and are they do they ever actually come out and admit it? It's the classic you know when you get these terrible events in history like the Holocaust. You know, bureaucrats and administrators are often very good at sort of always skirting around something that everybody knows is happening, but legally it's like you can't. There's there's not a line anywhere you can say this person wanted to do this at this time. What what were you finding from this this original correspondence and the order books that you were getting in, in, in the Glasgow University archives? Oh, they're they're fully open about it. Um not necessarily in the order books, um, because then you're just like, we just want to, you know, we want to buy a ship. Um, but the letters are very much like they are clear about how how many runs they're making. I mean they're they're big B especially is calculating profit that can be made off of each each return and basically yeah, they're right up front about the fact that if we can just get like two or three runs out of this, you know, we'll get the cost of ship back plus extra in terms of profit. And it is um, it is a lot of profit. They're kind of disposable. Uh, so they're kind of like disposable ships, aren't they? They're like, we had two or three successes with this and it doesn't matter if it gets captured, which a lot of them were or forced to run aground by the by the Union Navy, weren't they? Yeah, um, there is a. It, it is interesting that you can you can see the love of the vessels a lot in this. Uh, Big B is always a little bit torn up about um, the loss of some of these vessels. Um, there's a couple of letters where he expresses just sorrow, like um, oh, she only made one run um, and she got nailed coming back out of Wilmington um, and you know ran aground. But it's also kind of very much with this kind of laissez-faire that's what happens you know that's the risk of the game um the only times they seem to get really upset is when it is captured and taken to a price court um because it does seem as though if she just runs aground or vanishes in a shipwreck or gets destroyed um there's insurance paid out for them so and this is one of the points that you were making on that wasn't it it's we we think about it as um, you know, the manufacturers of these luxury goods and, you know, the, the pipes, which we'll just talk about in, in a minute from Glasgow specifically, for example. But it, it, the, the, everybody kind of, again, like all these sort of, you know, sort of dodgy international trades, everybody kind of gets involved. Now, we're all doing this on equipment that's probably been made under very poor conditions at best, you know, you know, our phones, you know, yeah. we're all, we're all using them, but we, we can all sort of sleep at night because we're sort of, we managed to disassociate ourselves because we bought it from a shiny shop. In a, in a in a city center in, in Ireland or, or 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 the UK, um. But you know, is is that really you know what's happening? Everyone else is getting involved. So the lawyers get involved. If the ship gets lost, there are lawyers somewhere in Georgia and lawyers in London or Glasgow. There's the insurance agents that are again know what they're claiming for. They know what they're fighting for. Uh, in terms of trying to claim the money back or the ships back, but this money begins to spread and spread and spread, and then soon enough, kind of everybody's involved. Is that the kind of scenario oh, that we should imagine on oh, both yeah. sides of the Atlantic? Pretty much. Um, so, the import and exporting company of Georgia, for example, um, they've all, oh, let's see, three, four, five, six, six ships. Um, they paid anywhere from 22,000 to 25,000 pounds for each vessel in um, 1860s currency. Conservatively, that is 3.4 million pounds in the 2023 equivalent. For Not per ship. Per ship. Per ship. Per ship. Okay. Per ship. 
per ship. So that is, yeah, 3.4 million pounds per ship flowing into, um, well, most of it going to James Thompson uh, for three, um, and then a few kind of scattered around Winfrew and Glasgow. Um, and that money then gets, yeah, it gets reinvested. Um, it get, you know, it pays workers, it's it's profits. Um, it's also probably where a lot of the money is coming for for these later uh, philanthropic ventures um, that a lot of these uh, individuals are setting up. Um, Napier, for example, has, you know, donated tons of money to, you know, engineering scholarships uh, later on in the, the 1880s and the kind of post-war. And yeah, and that's just the ships. I mean, in a lot of cases, these individuals are buying cargo space on the ships. They're part of these consortium firms that are loading the ships up. Uh, sometimes shadow shareholders where they're getting profits and dividends back out of the company, even after they've sold them the ships. So, I mean, they're making money uh, coming and going. Um, and the import and exporting company of Georgia, they pretty much ran into uh, Wilmington during the fall and summer of 1864. Um, so they were not active for that long. Um, the Emma Henry made one run into Wilmington. Funnily enough, she came direct from Glasgow, uh, carrying cargo purchased in Glasgow in 64. She got captured on her second attempt to run it. Um, Flory made eight runs uh, before she wrecked in 64, coming into Wilmington. The Lillian made eight runs between March and August 1864 when she was finally captured. Um, the Little Hattie made 10 runs and survived the war. Uh, Mary Bowers, unfortunately, made one run, uh, but then she holed herself on the wreck of another ship and sank just outside Wilmington. But that was a profit of $140 million for the importing and exporting company of Georgia. In 1860 money. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Yeah. It's it's insane. And that's... Can I ask a quick question about the, the ships? Once they started to realize how, I guess, disposable, as Tom said, they were, was there any change in the quality of these ships or anything? Or did they carry on as usual? Um, no. If anything, um, they got better, faster. Okay. Uh, more inventions. Um, there's a host of innovations uh, for things like um, uh, in this is um, far more engineering specific, uh, but changes to boilers and condensers uh, to make them um, let off steam underwater again so it can't be seen. Um, yeah, they get faster, lower drafted, um, better structured. They're, they're yeah, I mean, it, it's just a, a race of innovation. Yeah. That really looking that after their for investing in their future basically for it. Oh yeah. 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 And speed is is the key. And a lot of it is is there's a lot of reputation going around and there are kind of arguments and, and everybody's looking for ships. And this is one of the reasons why the Confederate Navy, ironically, um, has a very hard time getting ships because so many of them are being so many of the shipyards are devoted to blockade runners. And the Clyde gets a reputation as building um the best and the fastest and uh, best engineered. And there's comparison studies about kind of ships that don't perform as well. Um, they're doing engine trials up and down the Clyde, uh, clocking the speed. And yeah, it's a, it's a reputation for, um, for excellence that keeps orders coming in. It is predominantly the Clyde and Mercy side. There's a few London shipbuilders, but they never really seem to take track. Uh, but it is, it is, yeah, Clyde built and, uh, to a lesser extent from what I've seen, uh, Mercy side. And, and this is because they're, and, and the Clyde side, they're, they're playing both sides, aren't they as well? Because they're also making ships for the, for the Union Navy, aren't they? Or certainly some of the ships end up in the Union Navy if they, when they're captured, but they're, yeah. they're you know, they'll, they'll, um, they, in, in that sense, they'll, they'll take money from whoever's going to give it. Yeah. Um, ships, um, as far as I know, I don't think the U.S. Navy has any ships um, being built there. Um, but the, there is a, an arms race in Europe at this point. And at, certainly at the start of the war, both the U.S. Uh, military and the Confederacy are buying rifles and munitions from anybody they can get them from. 
Um, there's a host of manufacturers that are uh, selling infields and the Confederacy and union purchasing agents are basically fighting for them. So yeah. these are, these are, these are, it's a type of rifle. Yeah. 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 Uh, sorry. Uh, yeah. Three band infield uh, percussion uh, musket uh, rifled musket. And these end up with the union. They end up on the South. Um, there's also uh, classic examples of the, yeah they're buying everything they can get their hands on, and everybody who wants to make money is selling them to both sides. And then and that's, the, that's 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 the one thing I wanted to 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 press on as well because it brings into your, your previous amazing podcast you did with us on on Camp Lawton, which is a uh, I'll let you explain it a bit, but essentially a, a slave built uh, prisoner of war camp built by the Confederacy to to hold Union prisoners prisoners of war. Um, but you've found evidence there of of the the type of these luxury goods that are coming back across including again going back to glasgow a pipe made uh in in the east end of glasgow and i'm, I'm working with some friends at the moment who are friends of the pipe factory in the calton which is you know i think you, the, your find comes from a factory just north of glasgow cathedral and the, yeah. the friends of the pipe factory are now uh, with a, an original uh pipe factory still stands are are now looking at these transatlantic links and that their the, their pipes of white and company i think are, are found uh in, in north america as well so maybe you now just link into the sort of you know what actually you know, the, as it were, the, the man in the street or the 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 man or woman in the in the, in the prison camp were actually getting through and, and talking specifically about your your work with your director of the archaeological project at, at Camp Lawton. Yep. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, it's a Confederate uh, POW camp for Union prisoners of war, um, and the way these camps worked is um, essentially there was a sutler um, inside each camp. It was authorized by the camp commandant. Um, and Matt and Sutler would sell, uh, material culture to the prisoners, well, goods and, um, and essentials, some luxury items to the prisoners, to those that had the money for it. Um, but this is Confederate sanctioned trade and all this stuff is coming in from somewhere. And for Lawton, um, the reason blockade runners were coming into ports like Wilmington, um, and Charleston, um, is, Port access, um, shallow draft rivers, uh, where you can get past the Union blockade and go inland into the port. But then you also offload it right on the rail line. Um, and both Wilmington and Charles, Wilmington, North Carolina and Charleston, South Carolina are connected by rail directly to Augusta, Georgia. Augusta, Georgia has a rail line that runs, um, from Augusta south to, um, through Waynesboro and directly past the rail depot at Walton. And then down to Millen. And we've got, um, lead bail seals, cargo seals that were basically stamped on, um, you take wire, you wrap it around a cargo, uh, that's loaded onto, um, a rail car. You put a bit of lead on the wire and then you clamp down with a stamp, a customs ta- tax tariff stamp, and it shows the port, uh, rail, uh, yard of debarkation, um, the rail company that's carrying it. And we've got two of those from Lawton, uh, one from the Augusta Rail Depot and one from the Savannah Depot that shows there's cargo coming from both rail yards. And some of this cargo is almost certainly blockade uh, ran goods. Um, the pipe in particular um, is likely bought from a sutler by a prisoner um, and then broken and then um, in a testament to their addiction to nicotine um they used a lead bullet um and molded it got it warm enough to mold and made it into a pipe bowl after the pipe bowl broke off their tobacco pipe so we, but we still got the stem that's made in davidson and this is thomas davidson and company um it's was located on gargad hill road gargad hill no Gar- garngad yeah 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 it's, yeah yeah uh, but it's now, uh, now Royston Hill Road. Yeah. Um, and for those people that are looking, that's just north of where Glasgow Cathedral and most of that land has been developed in the way in the 60s and 70s for, for the M8 motorway, for example, but sort of not, not north of Glasgow Cathedral. Yep. Yep. Um, and Thomas Davison and Co., they only started producing pipes in 1862. Um, he, Thomas Davidson, took it over and renamed an existing factory. And fortunately for us, um, the, the Glasgow Weekly Mail um, sent a group of reporters to visit Davidson's factory. And they noted uh, that there were 43 molds. It's kind of fascinating 
are incredibly boring depending on your perspective narratives of uh, life in Glasgow and they noted that um, they had 43 distinct molds for types of tobacco pipes. Um, fortunately for us, there was a catalog printed in 1880 by Davidson, and it had images of all of their 200 plus varieties, including images of all the 43 molds from the early 1864. And our pipe doesn't match any of the molds that were present around the first few months of 1864. So it's probably made after this point. And it's pretty likely then that this tobacco pipe, broken and worn, um, was manufactured in Glasgow, carried across the Atlantic to the Bahamas or to Halifax, and then it was run into a southern port by a blockade runner and then shipped from Wilmington down the rail line to Augusta and then the Lawton Depot and into the Sutler's cabin. And outside of that, in the Confederate Guard area, who had more ability to purchase to a certain extent, well, more more market choice, um, definitely more market access. Um, we've got quite a lot of evidence of wine, rum, whiskey bottles, um, glass decanters, these same kind of luxury goods that are coming in uh, from blockade runners. Um, it is basically at this point, the only place that you can get anything like rum or wine or whiskey is on a blockade runner. Uh, the Confederacy has actually restricted the production of whiskey and alcohol um, as a result of the fact that it takes grain and barley and corn and corn and wheat and stuff like that that's going into whiskey. Our spirits is stuff that's not going to feed troops. So there's very tight restriction on alcohol and it's coming in through blockade running. And I suppose... You know, bring to an end that my questions. Look, we'll have some comments and questions as well too. But does I suppose the the question is: Do do blockade runners and that whole system that sets up do do you think they appreciably lengthen the war and the suffering and you know all all the the bad stuff that, that goes goes along with it? I think they absolutely do. Um, it's I mean I've I've you know. I focused on the non-military armaments, but every ship is still coming through with at least a section of its cargo devoted to those essential uh, war needs. Uh, Gunpowder, even things like saltpeter, um, raw materials for warfare, um, leather, shoes. Um, and it, it starts out uh, with massively large amounts. Um, um, in March of 1862, uh, the economist who was blockade runner came into Charleston with 100,000 rifles, 10 field artillery batteries with all their associated equipment. And in 1862, in April, a month later, uh, the Cape ran in Charleston. Rifles, pistols, cartridge boxes, knapsacks, accoutrements for 10,000 men and a thousand barrels of gunpowder. And even as late as December 1864, there are still equally large cargoes of munitions and essential supplies that are being run into Wilmington, North Carolina. And these are, you know, so yeah, you've got a predominant large side of it is the just trade in goods um, and goods that the civilian market wants. But on the other side of it, you still have uh, stuff coming in that is supporting the war effort. Um, just gunpowder um, is adding to it. Um, the import and exporting company of Georgia, um, which was set up as, it's basically private enterprise, but there's some evidence there's kind of shadow backing of the Georgia government where they're, uh, they're contracting with the state of Georgia to bring stuff in. Um, they were only in operation from 63 to 64, and they imported 26,700 jackets, 28,000 pairs of trousers, 37,000 pairs of shoes, uh, 23,000 pairs of socks. I don't know why the shoes don't make match the socks, but anyway. Um, and these are all under contract with the Georgia Governor Joseph Brown uh, for Confederate uh, for Georgia regiments in the Confederate military and the Georgia militia. 
So yeah, it, yeah, yeah. The the short answer she said was absolutely, and it, so it, it becomes it goes from a dark chapter in 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 North American history to a dark chapter uh, for 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 Britain and Clydeside and Maryside and London and and, and these these wealthy port sort of uh, city cities, and I think that's what I'm going to take away from this. Well, and just my last point question really is: Could you just give us an example of you know a, a sort of profit off a single? Uh, uh, um, trading uh, visit for 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 one of these blockade runners. I mean, you're talking about could you make you know a million, couple of million just on a, a one of these being su- successfully and paying for half your ship or, or just in one journey? Um, yeah, um, absolutely. Um, I've got figures because we're talking about what we t- you were saying I'll let, I'll let you look that up but I think we're you're talking about you know 3 3 and a half million say for for one of these sort of cutting edge ships and you're saying you know maybe a couple of uh trips might bring you the profit to kind of pay for them so you you I mean assuming oh, yeah. you're talking about a million and a half plus for a profit oh yeah pretty much easily um depending on what the going rate of cotton is um and again that's a million and a half plus profit just for the owners, shareholders, the captains are getting paid. Um, officers of the ship had uh, portions of it, portions of the cargo um, to be, who were basically their own. They had a ton, an allotment of cargo space that they could bring in uh, kind of whatever they wanted to um, and sell that. Um, and yeah, it is massive, massive profits just all the way around. I mean, one successful trip is enough to, to recoup anything spent on um, the vessel um, as well as make a profit off of it. Um, and it's profiteering, isn't it? It's something that, you know, with, with the, the various scandals around the world for, for um, to do with, with, with COVID and, you know, PPE and supplies for that. It's, it's just the same story, isn't it? People set up a company overnight and they'll just say, yeah, we'll get that thing for you. And then they'll subcontract and subcontract it and they'll never see it or touch it, but they, they make millions out of essentially people sort of suffering. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, millions off of suffering, uh, millions off of, off of demand. I mean, one of my favorite um, vignettes uh, from the blockade runners, this kind of uh, government contracted cargo, uh, the cargo that the consortiums are putting on it, and then the private cargo of the officers is... Um, in 1863, uh, the Don, a blockade runner, arrived in Wilmington um, with a thousand corsets uh, for the women of the Confederacy. Because the captain of the Don had kind of asked around, like, you know, what's what's in demand? And they're like, corsets. People want corsets. So he bought a thousand corsets. Um, as near as I could tell, he probably bought them either in Glasgow or Cork. Um, and he sold them in Charleston immediately upon, immediately upon, sorry, Wilmington. He sold them in Wilmington immediately upon landing, um, netting him a 1,100% profit. Percent. <laughs> yes. It netted him, those 1,000 courses netted him about $48,000 in today's money. Well, yeah, I mean, it's just from the, from the, you know, it ends up in this of just something that makes you sort of shake your, your head at just what people will, 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 will do for, mm-hmm. for, for money. And, um, yeah, I, yeah. And, and yeah, the mention of court there as well. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's Britain, it's Ireland, it's everybody who can yep. get access to these markets will try and profiteer from at that time. So, uh, yeah, uh, take it away, Luke, in terms of yeah, everything well, that you've looked at. kind of touched on it there, something that I wanted to ask. What was Ireland's role in it? I know there are plenty of ports and shipbuilding going on in Ireland at that time. Did they have a role in the activity going on at that time? Um, yeah, um, I think... I haven't, I haven't looked at the Irish side of the shipbuilding, but I think there's a few ships uh, that are built in Ireland that go on to become blockade runners. Um, plenty of the sailors and crews of the blockade runners uh, were Irish, are Scottish, um, are British. In fact, a lot of the um, captains of the blockade runners were on leave from the Royal Navy. Um, and on the other side of it, um, 
quite a huge chunk of the Confederate uniform industry. Um, jackets, coats, shoes, uh, leather accoutrements, um, buttons are being made, um, in, in fact, in court. Um, a okay. lot of them are being manufactured in court. And the ships will run out of Glasgow, um, or uh, London, or Liverpool with cargo there. They'll stop on um, cork on the way out, uh, recoal, um, fuel up coal um, and supplies, and add in um, these kind of military accoutrements of uniforms. Um, there's a whole good series of books, um, <laughs> funnily enough, um, purely written by an American because it's called British Exports uh, during the American Civil War, and there's an entire volume on Irish exports. <laughs> um and so, yeah, they're they're heavily involved with it. And yeah, everybody's profiting it. Um, I've most heavily looked into Glasgow, but I mean, my the my takeaway from this and the thing that kind of started to come out when I was pulling these threads is that everybody knows that the Clyde built blockade runners. Like it's something that's been acknowledged for years. The the transport museum has an excellent exhibit on it. Um the, yeah, the river, the Riverside Museum. It's 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 got like a cotton dress. It's got rifles. It's got pictures of people running the Confederate flag in Glasgow in the eighteen sixties. It's just an incredible, uh, very, yeah, worth seeing if you're if you're in Scotland. Just yeah, making just to absolutely. see that case, it's uh, remarkable. It's great, um, but yeah, but one of the things that isn't mentioned in here is that like it's not in in that exhibit is that it's not just the shipbuilders. They own shares. Shipbuilders own shares in these import and exporting firms making a percentage of the profits. They purchase and ship their own cargoes on these blockade runners. Uh, you have pipe makers like Davidson. There's pottery factories, wholesalers that are directly profiting off the blockade running. Um, you can see the records of the Clyde Navigation Trust where there's money pouring in in the 1860s to widen the Clyde, to add new shipyards, to add uh, new um, basically warehouses to hold goods. Um, and this is all, this is clearly related to the blockade running and this profits that were coming through cotton harvested by enslaved people. And at a time when a bunch of other industrial cities in the UK were floundering, Glasgow was flourishing. Um, Robert Napier and Sons, um, there's a really good picture of his foreman. Um in 1858, and by the 1860s, the foreman in that picture had gone on to found J. and G. Thompson, William Dinian Brothers, Randolph Elder and Cole. They're all building blockade runners, um, and many of them are still around in one form or another. Um, the Weir Group, um, John Brown and Company, who built the Lusitania, incidentally, um, lasted until 2000 in various enter entities. Uh, BAE Systems is a descendant of a lot of these shipbuilding firms that made their profit on blockade running and all the associated stuff. And again, yeah, the wealth that was made on this stuff just led to an explosion in philanthropy, tax and tariff revenues, and it all contributed to Glasgow flourishing in the 1860s. And I think that's that um, for me as a Glaswegian sitting in the Clyde side at the moment is is is, is something yeah to 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 to, to take away and and and, th and, and think about and uh, yeah certainly visit um, the the museum expression again and um, reads you know what, what can we read of of yours do you have any papers or or, or any books sort of coming out or your research projects you're working on at the moment right. Um, at the moment, um, this is, well, I'll be presenting some of this research at the Society for American Archaeology meeting in April in New Orleans. Um, and this is currently, um, this is part, I should say, that the genesis of this research um, was a grant from the Society for Post-Medieval Archaeology that funded the initial uh, visit to the archives in Glasgow to the uh, Glasgow University archives uh, there, which are incredible. You should, if you have any interest in this type of stuff, you should definitely go there. Um, and this is going to be turned into an article <clears throat> at some point soon uh, that'll probably come out in the Journal of Conflict Archaeology um, if the uh, editors will take it. Um, so nothing out yet to read specifically about this. Um, I do have articles about Camp Lawton specifically and the Civil War in Georgia in the Journal of Conflict Archaeology. 
uh, Ward Archaeological Journal, um, and a local um, regional uh, journal, uh, Early Georgia. But I'm also happy if anybody wants to send me an email to send them copies of those articles, um, given the, uh, if you're not a member of the uh, Archive University or Academic Access, the massive paywalls that are up on those. Uh, so I've got copies of all of them, um, but I'm, and I'm happy to send them to anyone who's interested. Well, that's fantastic. And this is this is Dr. Ryan K. McNutt, who's at uh, University of Georgia Southern and the Camp Lawton uh, project there. So you can you can search for that easily on on the internet. We'll have some notes that accompany this podcast and the YouTube version as well. But uh, from from me uh, to to uh, a dear old friend Ryan, thank you so much. Uh, absolutely fascinating. I we could have listened to this all day, but eventually Luke will tell me to stop talking. <laughs> so I'm going to try and stop before that that happens and uh yeah i'll just leave the uh, final word with, with luke to, to say his thanks as well well i want to say thanks but i also want to ask you two questions um sure. we've been we've been finishing these podcasts as of late with kind of lifting the mood a little bit and asking something a bit more uh i don't know fun friendly yeah nice <laughs> One accessible question. sort isn't it yeah. yeah 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 one question i want to ask is historical musicals have become a massive niche in the world at the moment with Hamilton, Six, things like that. Um, would this make for a good musical? And if so, what musician would you think should write the music for it? Oh. I think it might depend on the genre you were looking for. Mm. I think it would make a good um, tragic comedy in a lot yeah. of ways. Yeah. Um, definitely a tragic comedy. Um, if you wanted to go on a, on a, well, if you wanted to take kind of a darker note of, um, the kind of profits and the ruination of people, um, mm. that would probably work as well. Um, I would, I would probably go with Killer Mike for that one. That would um, be great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if you wanted to do a tragic comedy, I think. It's a cop out, but probably Lin Lin Manuel Miranda. Would yeah, do yeah, yeah. Comedy. Um, he would have the right vibes for some of the just kind of hilarious. So we're we're, we're definitely sticking with the hip hop musical. Um, I think so. Um, <laughs> I think uh, I don't know. I don't see a rock opera really working too well with it. No, I wouldn't. Yeah, I think that's a good answer. Killer Mike is that, that's something I'd like to see. Yeah. And yeah. second question I have for you, this is a general history, archaeology question that I like to ask people. If you could say you're being awarded by, I don't know, the gods of archaeology, gods of history, and they're awarding you one artifact that you get to keep, not a replica, the actual artifact that you keep in your house, display it wherever you want, what artifact do you pick? Hmm. And it can be, I mean, Ryan, Ryan uh, it looks at early medieval, medieval, mm -hmm. battlefield anything. conflict archaeology. Throughout, throughout be, history. Anything oh, you want, you know, yeah. classical, whatever. It's a tough question. It is. Um, <laughs> I've got I've got two answers. Um, the first would be um, Robert the Bruce's axe that he used at the Battle of Annenberg. Um the second would probably be um, Sherman um, had a brace of pistols um, that was given to him by his officers um, at the conclusion of the March to the Sea campaign. And yeah, those are they. Are they still extant? Are they or did um, they? I've seen a few pictures of them here and there. I think they have vanished into a private collector's hand somewhere, if I remember correctly. Uh, but they were. Uh, Pearl Handel, Pearl Handel, uh, Remington, uh, not Remington, uh, Smith and Wesson, uh, new, new model, um, number two, uh, 30, oh, brother, 32 caliber. And these were, he would have had on them when he was leading the march to the sea, which is the thing that causes your camp Lawton to be evacuated after only yeah. a month. So it's, it's really relevant to, to, to your work. Yeah. Yeah, relevant to my work and, and just a, I wouldn't say an admirer of Sherman. Um, he was a 
a man of his time and a harsh man uh, in a lot of different ways, um, particularly with his attitudes towards Native Americans. Um, mm. But he is a intriguing character. Well, there's again more food for thought, and as if we didn't have enough already with the, <laughs> the fascinating story of the slavery and the cotton, the blockade runners, the the fact that everybody's kind of embroiled, just, you know, when money's available, you know, we sadly as human beings, we tend to gravitate towards it. But um, we certainly gravitated towards a fascinating topic and it's been yep. brilliantly told by by Ryan here. So um, just I'd like to thank you from behalf of the Shindig and the Red River Archaeology Group. Thank you again. Um, people can listen to your previous amazing podcast on, on, on Camp Lawton. But thank you again for talking to us today, Ryan. Yep, absolutely. Thanks for having me. It's always a joy. Tom, another incredible, incredible interview there on the Shindig. Um, What did you think of that one? What were your, your takeaways from that? I mean, I didn't think that we could have a more interesting interview with Ryan mm-hmm. uh, after we'd done Camp Lawton, but... You know, I'm, I'm sitting here in Glasgow, and you know, it's it's the it's the stones throw. I'm a literal stones throw away from where these ships were being built, and you've kind of been coming aware of it in Glasgow. There's there's that as we did reference. There's there's a good exhibition in the Riverside uh, Museum in, in Glasgow about that, and there's some books start to come out. But I don't think it's really in this consciousness. It's certainly not something growing up that that you knew about. So I, you know, it really just strikes home. You know what. What's it like human greed? Uh, you know, when it, when it meets embargoes, when it meets warfare. Um, eventually, if you pay enough money, people people will you know they'll they'll they'll, they'll take the the devil's dollar really. Yeah, and it's incredible to see that like humanity doesn't seem to learn from these things, and these things seem to keep cycling and keep coming through history all the time up to modern times, as you said in the intro. Um, I think this was an incredible interview. This was like. As we said at the start, Ryan is great. He he knows so much about what he's talking about. And it's so good to get to hear somebody like that speak on a topic like this. That is, I guess, can be seen as a dark or depressing subject. But um, to, to speak about it in such an interesting way is great. And I like getting to ask people like that uh, fun questions near the end as well. So, Yeah, no, I mean, I think, I think that's it. I mean, if people don't enjoy this podcast and it's failed as outreach so you know, we, you know we, we want to make it interesting and not just a sort of one note production so yeah, exactly um but yeah you know we're, we're we're we'll always be trying new things um and we'll always be wanting to interview new, new people so you know if you're studying uh, something to yep. do with archaeology yep. history um just you know get in touch um you can just contact us through our social media or you can find us on our red river archaeology group websites uh if you email that that will that will get through to us because or even something as simple as if you're on youtube leave us a comment on youtube letting us know what you'd like to see on the podcast what you'd like to hear on the podcast we're open to to all stories um we want you to come to us because we're coming to you. That's what this is about. It's about outreach. You said the, the key word, outreach, reaching out. We want this to get to as many people as we possibly can. So with that in mind, give it a like, give it a share, give it a subscribe, leave us a comment, leave us a rating and tune in to the Shindig brought to you by the Red River Archaeology Group. My name is Luke Barry. And I'm Tom Horn. And thanks again for listening.